Welcome to Come Follow Me with Bree, episode 78, The Lord is With You. Hi, I'm so glad that you're here. Do you know how much it means to me that you show up every week? It's something, doing this podcast is something that I feel called to do. And sometimes I wonder if it makes a difference. But then I look and I see you listening. And it means so much to me. And it's so much validation for me to keep going and keep trying to put something good out there in the world. So thank you. You're sharing, you're listening. It makes a difference to me. And hopefully through that, through you helping motivate me by listening, I can keep going. And this just can be one more good thing that's out in the world. Now, that all being said, you remember if you listened to last week, I moved. So now I'm at my new house and I wish you guys could see I have, (laughs) I'm in my new bedroom and um, my new bedroom has this really cool built-in desk that I'm super excited about. And I've never had a desk before. All my previous podcasts, I know that this maybe like ruins the visual you have of me being all, I don't know, official and at something that looks somewhat professional. But in all my previous episodes, I was sitting on my bed to record because I've got all the soft bedding around me and I've got the carpeting and anyway, and it makes for nice sound. But here I have wood floors and this desk and there's really nothing soft around me. So I have like pillows and blankets stacked out in front of me, hopefully helping so that the sound is still good. Maybe I should post that on Instagram um, and show you guys my new desk. If you don't follow me on Instagram, it's come follow me underscore with Brie. And I always aspire to be good at posting on there, but I wouldn't say I am, but I will post my desk. So I'm excited about that. All right, let's get started. This week, we are talking about Joseph. This is one of the most well-known stories in the Old Testament of Joseph's life and all of the crazy things that happened to him. I love how the Come Follow Me manual starts out this week. It starts out, the very first sentence, sometimes bad things happen to good people. I think we all know that to be true. Sometimes bad things happen to good people, and that is how life was supposed to be, even though it feels wrong sometimes when it's happening specifically to us. The manual continues. It says, it seemed that the more faithful he was, the more hardship he faced. But all this adversity was not a sign of God's disapproval. In fact, through it all, the Lord was with him. Joseph's life was a manifestation of this important truth. God will not forsake us. Following the Savior will not remove all your trials, President Dieter F. Uchtdorf taught. However, it will remove the barriers between you and the help your Heavenly Father wants to give you. God will be with you. Isn't that beautiful? So that's what we're going to talk about today. And lots of times I don't go through in detail the the story that we talk about, but this week I wanted to because his story is so interesting. So many crazy things happened to him. And I think even though I'm not going to talk about every single aspect and every every single thing that you can draw out of this story, I think by hearing it, by having it in your mind, You can ponder what I'm going to talk about, but you also can ponder what you think about as you listen to his story. Joseph is Jacob's son through Rebecca. Rebecca died in childbirth with him, and Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. Jacob's son, Reuben, would have had the birthright, but he committed adultery with Cringy, one of Jacob's wives, Bilia, Biliha, I don't know how to say her name. And because of that, he forfeited his birthright. So Joseph then becomes 
the birthright son. Jacob makes him what is called a coat of many colors, perhaps symbolizing that he was the birthright son. Joseph, past this point, has a very, very rough go of it. First of all, he has a couple of dreams that he told his brothers and his father about that didn't necessarily endear him to them. (laughs) One of the dreams was that they were gathering sheaves, which are bundles of grain in the field, and his bundle stood up while all of their bundles bowed to his bundle. And then he had a second dream where the sun and the moon, which symbolized Jacob and Rebecca, his father and mother, and then 11 stars, meaning his brothers, bowed to him. Now, as you can imagine, his brothers didn't very much like these dreams, saying things like, shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him. And that becomes very clear in the story that follows. Now, one interesting just little side note, here Jacob has two dreams. And then later in his life, when he's interpreting a dream for Pharaoh, Pharaoh has two dreams. And Joseph points out to Pharaoh that this is how the Lord confirms to us by by multiple witnesses that it actually is a message from the Lord. So just something cool to think about that there's a purpose to there being two dreams with the same interpretation. His brothers were taking the flocks kind of far away to find grazing pasture for them and Jacob asked Joseph to go check on them. As the brothers spot him in the distance coming toward them, they say, "Behold this dreamer cometh." And you can just imagine the mocking tone that they say that. "Behold this dreamer cometh." Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit, and we will say some evil beast devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. You can tell here, this resentment for these dreams, they go deep. Now, at this point, Reuben, interestingly, he remember he was the original birthright son. He heard his brothers talking about this and tried to convince them not to kill him and instead convinced them to just put him into a pit so that he then, Reuben, could go back and rescue him later. So clearly Reuben has some some feelings for his brother. He doesn't want to do this. Jacob comes and they take off his coat and they throw him into the pit. And after they have done this, they're sitting down to eat and they see some Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt to sell. And Judah, who is the ancestor, the direct ancestor of the Jews, say, what good does it do to kill him when we could sell him? He also says, for he is our brother and our flesh. So perhaps he was trying to keep Joseph from being killed as well. But as they're deciding all of this, some Midianites passed by. So obviously the pit, whatever pit he was in, must have been far enough away that they didn't notice immediately, um, came by and lifted Joseph out of the pit. And then they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. When Reuben goes back to the pit and sees that Joseph isn't there, he is very upset. And the brothers, he goes back to the brothers, and they're really not sure what to do and what they're going to tell their father. And so they kill a baby goat, and they put blood on Jacob's coat that they had previously taken off to show it to their father. They kind of, when they go back to their father, they kind of act a little innocent, like, oh, is this is this Joseph's coat? I don't know. Is it, father? And of course, it seems like a pretty uh, obvious coat if it's called the coat of many colors. Uh, Jacob knows that it's Joseph's and he assumes that Joseph is dead and his heart is broken. So at this point, we learn that Joseph is ultimately sold to Potiphar, who is an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. 
remember that Joseph, he, I guess I didn't say this earlier, but he's only about 17 years old at this point, And he had just had the rug ripped out from under him. He has been thinking that he will be made ruler or leader or whatever over his brothers. And then all of a sudden this happens. It's a good reminder to us that all things are in the Lord's timing. So did Joseph lose faith? Let's find out as we go on with the story. Joseph is quite successful in his slavery. Potiphar trusts him completely, and he makes him to be the overseer over his entire household, essentially putting all that he has in Joseph's hand, and he does not worry about it. He trusts him completely. But then enter in Potiphar's wife, and she does not seem like a very a very good person, a very faithful person. She is she pursues Joseph heavily. So Potiphar's wife, apparently she thought he was pretty dashing and she tries to seduce him, but he refuses saying that Potiphar trusts him completely. And why would I do this thing? In chapter 39, it says, there is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me, but thee, because thou art his wife. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? We see here that Joseph is a very righteous man. He is not willing to betray his master, and he is not willing to sin against God. But she didn't give up. She continues to try to seduce him, and finally, she appears to be getting really desperate, and she waits for Joseph to be alone in the house. In verse 12, it says, And she caught him by his garment, meaning his cloak, saying, Lay with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. Now you can imagine at this point that her pride's pretty wounded. She's been not just rejected repeatedly, but now really forcefully rejected as he runs away from her. And I always think that it's such a good uh, visual to to help remind us how we should should act and feel about sin. I love, I think it's Nephi, doesn't he say, make me that I might shake at the appearance of sin? I feel like Joseph is really just an, an excellent example of of how we should react to to sin and temptation. So she's super angry at this point. She screams and then pretends with Joseph's cloak in her hand that he, Joseph, is the one who tried to seduce her and that she had to scream to get him to go away. And she repeats this lie to her husband and he was very angry. So Joseph goes to prison and miraculously he isn't executed. I would think that that would have probably happened, but he wasn't executed. And the Lord blesses him in prison. And he's able to gain favor with the keeper of the prison, kind of the same thing that happened with Potiphar when he was originally sold into slavery. And this warden, the keeper of the prison, puts Joseph in charge of the prison, and he trusts him completely, just like Potiphar did, and doesn't really worry about checking up on Joseph. As Joseph is in charge of this prison, there came a point where the butler of the king and the baker of the king got into some trouble and ended up in prison. Joseph, because he was in charge of the prison, was in charge of them. And one night, both of these men each dreamed a dream that was upsetting to them. When Joseph notices that they're upset, he asks them why they are sad. And they tell him that they don't know how to interpret the dreams that they have had the night before. Joseph says, do not interpretations belong to God? Basically saying, God can interpret dreams. And he asks the men to tell them the dreams. First, the butler tells his dream. In his dream... A vine was in front of him with three branches, and it was blooming and had clusters of grapes. And Pharaoh's cup 
was in his hand, and he took the grapes and squeezed the juice into the Pharaoh's cup and then gave the cup to the Pharaoh. Joseph interprets the dream through the Lord. He says that the branches mean three days, and in three days, Pharaoh will restore him to his position as butler. Joseph then asked him when this happens to please put in a good word for him with Pharaoh and try to get him out of prison because, as he explains, he has done nothing wrong. So the baker is excited about this good interpretation, and he also wants Joseph to interpret his dream. But he is unfortunately very disappointed in the interpretation of his dream. In his dream, he had three white baskets on his head, and in the top basket, there were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds eat them out of the basket. Joseph interprets this dream and says that the baskets are also three days, and in three days, Pharaoh will hang you from a tree and birds will eat your flesh. So, yikes. Not quite the same experience between the butler and the baker. So three days from then, Pharaoh had his birthday party and he was having a feast and he brought the butler and the bacon, the bacon. (laughs) That's not normally something I would go back and edit out, but it's kind of funny that I said bacon, so I'll leave it there. Okay. So he brought the butler and the baker out of prison and he had them stand in front of his servants. Just as Joseph had prophesied, he restored the butler to his position and he hung the baker. So sad, sad end for the baker. The end of this chapter, even though this miraculous prophecy is fulfilled, the butler still forgot to put in a good word with Pharaoh. So Joseph remains in prison for two more years. Can you imagine how frustrating that would be? Yet again, we see that Joseph is being patient with the timing the Lord has planned. So it has been two years and Pharaoh had a dream that he was standing by a river and out of the river came seven healthy fat cows and they went to eat in a field. And after that, another seven cows came out of the river who were skinny and sickly. And they came and stood by the fat, healthy cows. And the skinny, sickly cows then came and ate the fat, healthy cows. He then had a second dream. And in that dream, he witnesses a sickly crop of seven ears devouring a healthy crop of seven ears. He tries to get all of his wise men to interpret, and they couldn't. And at this point, it's the butler that remembers that he has failed to put in a good word for Joseph. So he tells Pharaoh about Joseph's miraculous interpretation of their dreams. Pharaoh sends for Joseph, and Joseph cleans himself up and comes to the Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him that he has heard that he can interpret dreams. And Joseph is quick to correct that, saying, It is not me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. I want to pause the story here a little bit. So, Two years ago, Joseph does this amazing thing through the Lord and interprets the butler's dream. And it takes two years for him to see any good, any blessing come from that. Think of what we can learn from that. Good things that we are asked to do don't necessarily have immediate results. And we have Joseph, who hasn't grown bitter in all of this time. He's still crediting God for all of his his gifts in interpreting dreams. He's making sure that the Pharaoh knows that it's not him, that it's God. And so we don't have a a bitter Joseph coming out of prison, waiting two years for any good to have come from that. We have a faith-filled, humble Joseph. So after Pharaoh recounts his dream, Joseph tells him that both dreams mean the same thing. He tells Pharaoh that there will be seven years of great plenty throughout Egypt, And after that, seven years of famine. And it's a famine that will be so terrible 
that the people of the land will completely forget the seven years of plenty. Joseph then advises Pharaoh to find someone who is wise to be in charge of preparing for the famine. He tells him that he needs to store food storage from the seven years of plenty so that they will have food for the seven years of famine. The Pharaoh is ultra impressed and says, who could be better at that job than Joseph? He says that there is none so discreet and wise as you. So Joseph at this point is promoted to second in command. Think about that. He's going from prison from years of waiting in prison to second in command below Pharaoh. I mean, I can't even think of another example of such a great rise to power. For a third time, Joseph is given jurisdiction over all that his master has. First, we have Potiphar, who gave him jurisdiction over all of his possessions and affairs. And then the warden, who gave him jurisdiction over the prison. And now Pharaoh. The Pharaoh really puts Joseph on a pedestal. In fact, in verse 44 of chapter 41, he says, And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without thee shall no man lift up his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. So basically saying, no one can do anything without your permission. Joseph marries a daughter of, I don't know how to say this name, Potiphera. <laughs> He's a priest um, of On. And side note, eventually Joseph has a son named, get ready for a name that you're going to recognize, Ephraim, through whom the Abrahamic covenant is perpetuated. So this wife that he marries must have been descendants of Noah's son Shem or Japheth rather than Ham, because those sons were not cut off from the Abrahamic covenant like Ham was. And actually Ephraim was his second born son. His first born son is another name you'll recognize, Manasseh. So clearly in some way, this woman that he marries was not a Canaanite. She was not through the descendants of Ham. Okay, so the famine comes and Egypt is prepared because of Joseph's wise preparation through the Lord. And next week, we're going to talk about how the story really comes full circle as he then has the opportunity to forgive and help his family through this famine. But let's talk about what we can learn so far from Joseph's story today. What stands out the very most to me is Joseph's patience with the Lord. He is put in terrible situation after terrible situation after being promised blessings, amazing blessings that seemed kind of impossible even at that point. But then these terrible things happen. And you would think that somebody who really isn't full of faith, they would start to doubt whether the Lord really knew what he was talking about or whether the Lord was really even there. And yet, through faith and righteousness and obedience, Joseph makes the best out of these circumstances and creates quite a life for himself. While we ourselves might not find the same kind of outwardly obvious success to the world, true success in our lives likely will look like finding joy and peace along the way even when things aren't going in directions that we would prefer. President Nelson talks about experiencing peace and joy in hard circumstances in his talk called Joy and Spiritual Survival. He says, Just as the Savior offers peace that passeth all understanding, he also offers an intensity, depth, and breadth of joy that defy human logic or mortal comprehension. For example, it doesn't seem possible to feel joy when your child suffers with an incurable illness or when you lose your job or when your spouse betrays you. Yet, that is precisely the joy the Savior offers. His joy is constant. 
assuring us that our afflictions shall be but a small moment and consecrated to our gain. How then can we claim that joy? We can start by looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, in every thought. We can give thanks for him in our prayers by keeping covenants we've made with him and our Heavenly Father. As our Savior becomes more and more real to us, and as we plead for his joy to be given given to us, our joy will increase. Joy is powerful, and focusing on joy brings God's power into our lives. As in all things, Jesus Christ is our ultimate exemplar. For who the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Think of that. In order for him to endure the most excruciating experience ever endured on earth, our Savior focused on joy. And what was the joy that was set before him? Surely it included the joy of cleansing, healing, and strengthening us. The joy of paying for the sins of all who would repent. The joy of making it possible for you and me to return home clean and worthy to live with our heavenly parents and families. If we focus on the joy that will come to us or to those we love, what we can endure that presently seems overwhelming, painful, scary, unfair, or simply impossible, if we look to the world and follow its formula for happiness, we will never know joy. The unrighteous may experience any number of emotions and sensations, but they will never experience joy. Joy is a gift for the faithful. It is a gift that comes from intentionally trying to live a righteous life as taught by Jesus Christ. He taught us how to have joy. When we choose Heavenly Father to be our God, when we can feel the Savior's atonement working in our lives, we will be filled with joy. Every time we nurture our spouse and guide our children, every time we forgive someone or ask for forgiveness, we can feel joy. Every day that you and I choose to live celestial laws, every day that we keep our covenants and help others to do the same, joy will be ours. Heed those words of the psalmist. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. In his presence is the fullness of joy. As this principle is embedded in our hearts, each and every day can be a day of joy and gladness. Now, no one likes to be told to be joyful as they struggle through very real and heartbreaking pain, even by a prophet. But I'd like to remind you that it's not me or President Nelson telling you to do so. The Lord has told us that even during these hard times, even during trials that seem impossible, we can have faith and joy in the process and journey through the Savior. Elder Holland reminds us in his talk, Waiting on the Lord, he says, how long do we wait for relief from hardships that come upon us? What about enduring personal trials while we wait and wait and help seems so slow in coming? Why the delay when burdens seem more than we can bear? While asking such questions, we can, if we try, hear another's cry echoing from a dank, dark prison cell during one of the coldest winters then on record in that locale. Oh God, where art thou? We hear from the depths of Liberty Jail. And where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? How long shall thy hand be stayed? How long, O Lord, how long? So we are not the first, nor will we be the last to ask such questions when sorrows bear down upon us, or an ache in our heart goes on and on. That reminds me of the scripture that we read a couple of weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 11. Paul recounts the many hardships of prophets and death that happened before receiving all the blessings that they had been promised. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, and then chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. 
All these, meaning the prophets and their wives, all these died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You, no doubt, have things in your life that feel as though you are waiting on the Lord. Although that can be painful, confusing, and seemingly without an end in sight, we all are in good company with saints throughout history who also waited on the Lord. Historically, life has not been as comfort-filled and instantly gratifying as it is now. So I think because of that, because we're so used to that level of comfort, I think that we often forget when things are going in a way that feels wrong, that just because it feels wrong doesn't mean anything has actually gone wrong. In fact, I can promise you that nothing has gone wrong because the Lord's plan cannot be frustrated. The Lord's plan for you cannot be frustrated. The only way that his plan for you won't work out is through your agency. Sometimes, as we see all throughout scripture, we don't get what we want when we want it. And that's hard. He had a plan for Joseph, who was betrayed and subsequently enslaved due to the actions of his own family, condemned because the pride and deceit of Potiphar's wife, forgotten by those he helped. And just like the Lord had a plan for Joseph, he has a plan for you. I don't know exactly what it looks like. You don't know exactly what it looks like. But I can give you the overarching storyline. You came to earth determined to serve the Lord, to use your agency wisely. You came to earth with a desire to live faithfully and be productive. You have been promised blessings. If you are faithful, these promises will be fulfilled. Nothing will be held back from you. Nothing has gone wrong. He has everything under control in his hands. If you are doing your part in keeping your covenants and keeping the commandments, he will do his. It is that simple. We just have to trust him. Mormon chapter 8 verse 22. For the eternal purposes of the Lord shall roll on. His plan for you shall roll on until all his promises shall be fulfilled. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.